There is no other name more powerful than the name of Jesus. And it is so good to gather together and to sing with passion to the King who knows us and loves us, has called us by name, has rescued us through His precious blood that was shed on the cross for you. You see, it's through this great King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is making a new kind of people. And He brings us together, people from various backgrounds and perspectives and ideologies, and He brings us to faith in Jesus, and He brings us together into a new covenant community called the church. And in the church, we see where this King displays His power and glory through a changed people. A people who are not who they used to be. A people who have been transformed by the power of His grace. When I first came to faith in Jesus at the age of 18, I got to the University of Kentucky where I found a group of other followers of Jesus. And I was invited to go to a local church on a Sunday morning. And when I went, I got connected with a college ministry in which there were hundreds of college students who were gathering together. And it's with that group of college students that Christy and I began to just grow spiritually like crazy. Amongst this group of college students, man, there was a passion for Jesus. We, there was a hunger for the Word of God. Personal evangelism was normal. We were regularly sharing the gospel with college students and people all throughout the community serving the church, holding one another accountable, memorizing Scripture together. There was just this movement in which the Holy Spirit was, was making us and changing us into a new kind of people. And this week, I've been thinking about those sweet days in that local church, in that season in which Chris and I were in college, in which God just transformed our lives. And he put us around a group of believers where there was just a, a white hot passion for Jesus. And he transformed us. And last night, as I was praying over the message for this morning, I was thinking through all the people that came through that ministry. And within a matter of moments, I could count 25 different people whom God called out of that college ministry into full-time ministry. Pastors, missionaries, seminary professors, church planters. There's a sense in which when a church comes together and Jesus Christ is supreme and the people have a passion for Him, God begins to move. And He begins to call people out to the nations and to their neighbors with the gospel. And that is what we see happening in Acts chapter 13 with the church of Antioch. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. And it's amazing just seeing the work of this historical narrative where it tells the story of how the church was born in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls. 3,000 people believed and are saved. And it's from there the church continues to grow and to mature through the suffering and persecution of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, we see chapter 8 where the church scatters outward into uh, Judea and into Samaria. And the gospel begins to spread. When we get to Acts 13, we now see a pivot point in the historical narrative of the book of Acts. 
This ebb and flow of the entire book changes. That Whereas the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts focuses on the, the life and ministry of Simon Peter, we now see a pivot to the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. In fact, chapters 13 through the rest of the book are going to be primarily about Paul. We'll see Peter make a cameo appearance in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. But the primary focus of the rest of the book is now on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul ended up in Antioch after Barnabas brought him there to serve the church as a preacher, as a teacher. The church at Antioch is where Paul cut his teeth on learning how to be a leader, a disciple maker in the local church. In Acts 13, Luke pulls back the curtain to show us what God was doing in the church at Antioch and how God raised up two men to take the gospel to those who have never heard. Look with me in Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And the scripture says this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. In Acts 13, we see where Antioch becomes the headquarters for sending people to the nations with the gospel. The planted church becomes a church planting church. Forty years ago, Westwood was planted as a church in the heart of Alabaster with a heart to reach people with the gospel. And since our beginning over four decades ago, the Lord has used our church to plant several churches. May God continue to use our church to plant more churches so that there's more people who can be gathered together just like we are so that the gospel can go forth, disciples can be made, and lives could be changed. Antioch is a model for how churches can be missional in making disciples all over the world. There's four characteristics in these three verses that that show us what a missional church looks like. What does this mean for us? Let me show you here in the text these four characteristics of a missional church. The first is this. In a missional church, there is a propensity for studying the Word of God. There's a propensity for studying the Word of God. Luke highlights the task of the church leadership, chapter 13, verse 1, when he says this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers were responsible for instructing the local congregation of what God had revealed. The prophets were foretellers who would proclaim what God had revealed in His Word and would implore people to respond. Luke is describing for Theophilus, the original recipient of this book, but also for us today, what the church at Antioch was like. So he begins with the leadership of the church. He points to their function within the church as prophets, as teachers, men who would lead and shepherd with the word. In fact, if you were to backpedal back to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, For a whole year, Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught large numbers. So quite possibly in a large room like this, 
2,000 years ago, the people would gather and they would listen to the Word of God taught, explained, and applied. Paul would write to young Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. A pastor's duty is to lead the church in devoting themselves to the Word of God. Teaching, explaining, illustrating, exhorting, encouraging, challenging God's people with the Word. Indeed, faithful Bible preachers inform the mind, inspire the heart, and implore obedience. A preacher's job is not to entertain. It's not to proclaim their opinions. It's not to espouse political views. It's not to give their opinion on pop psychology of the day. The job is to preach the Word. That's what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. The primary task of preachers is to bring the Word of God to bear upon God's people. Now, why does God call men to such a task as this? It's because without the Word, we will fall into error. We will believe things about God that are not true. That people will be unprepared for judgment day. We will neglect what God commands and we're going to miss God altogether. The scriptures are precious. They're sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible describes itself like a hammer. It destroys strongholds. It's like a fire within our bones. It's refreshing water for a weary soul. It's the living and active word of God. The book in your lap breathes. It's living and active. And the more you read your Bible, the more your Bible reads you. Regularly, I'll have people ask me after a sermon, how did you know what I was going through? What you just said speaks to directly to what I'm facing. And I tell them, we have hired the FBI. <laughs> They follow you around, write down notes, and then tell me what to say. No. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in the people of God for the glory of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to speak directly to the people of God for the glory of God. The Spirit who wrote the book is using His own words to speak into your life, to challenge you, to encourage you, to comfort you, to remind you, to walk with you and say, let me show you how I am at work, who I am, how I am faithful, that you might look unto the character of God to sustain you as you walk through this trial. There is power in the Bible. And the Spirit who inspired the book searches our hearts. He uses the Word to speak into our very lives. You see, missional churches love the Bible. Oh, that we would be a people of the book. That we love the Word of God. 
then we hide it in our hearts. We treasure the scriptures, that we meditate on it day and night, that we would be like the tree in Psalm 1 that bears its fruit in its season, in which its leaf never withers. And all that we do, we prosper because we are people who love the scriptures. So when the church gathers, it's the word of God that takes center stage. Not the personality of the preacher, not the talents of his people. It's his word. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Do you want to hear God speak to you audibly? Open your Bible and read it out loud. God has spoken and he has revealed himself through his word. And for the church at Antioch, verse one, they had an all-star team of preachers who could rightly divide the word of truth and bring God's word to bear upon the people. The second characteristic of a missional church we see there in the text is a diversity amongst the people of God. Luke lists, verse one, five key leaders who shepherded the church with the word. They functioned like pastors of the church at Antioch. Well, who were they? Verse 1, Barnabas. Barnabas, his name Barnabas means son of encouragement. According to Acts 4.36, he was a wealthy Jewish believer from Cyprus. Cyprus is a country, it's an island in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea. Then there's Simeon, who was called Niger. That word Niger, it means black or dark. Most scholars believe that Simeon was from Africa. We see Lucian, verse 1, he came from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. It's North Africa. It's the same location where the man who helped Jesus carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, that's where he was from. Then we see Manian, verse 1. It says there in the text that he was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Think about this for a minute. He's a close friend. That word for close friend, it could mean a foster brother. It could mean someone who grows up alongside someone within a family. Manian was brought up in Herod's household. Grab hold of this. He was related to the royal upper class. He was probably a foster brother or a relative of Herod Antipas. Here is Manian, a leader in the church at Antioch who grew up with the man who killed John the Baptist. Here is a guy who lived in the same house with the man who conspired with the Romans to have Jesus executed. And behind all of this, behind the scenes, God was still working. Like Moses, who grew up in the house of Pharaoh, Manian grows up in the house of Herod. And out of a home of absolute paganism, God raises up a leader in one of the healthiest churches in the first century. It's amazing to me. You never know who God may save. And you never know whom God may choose to use for his own glory. It may be someone you would never expect, which is what leads us to our fifth person in verse 1, Saul. We met Saul back in chapter 9 at his conversion on the Damascus Road. He was from Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. We know the most about Saul because he's also 
Paul, who wrote 13 New Testament letters. He was a Pharisee, highly educated, an academic, who was a professional teacher, a master of the Old Testament. So amongst the Antioch Five, we have two Africans, one guy from Turkey, one guy from Israel, and one guy from an island in the Mediterranean. This is a multicultural church. Different heart languages, different accents, skin tones, spices and foods, different clothing styles. This local church was not monolithic, but multicolored, multi-ethnic, multicultural. It was a cosmopolitan faith family. Gathered in Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, is a large church that reflected the diversity of the community. What a beautiful foretaste of heaven. Where we see the Apostle John point us to the future. He pulls back the curtain on the future in Revelation 7, in which he says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. People from various tribes and tongues and peoples and nations coming together to worship Jesus with a white hot passion. This, what we see in Antioch, is a foretaste of what is to come. And as we as a church aim to reach more people with the gospel, we as a church are going to become more and more diverse. Praise his name. That as we reach more people for Jesus, we are going to be looking and reflecting a whole lot more like our community. And the, the community in which we live is changing. And the nations are coming to us. That's what we see here in Antioch in chapter 13. They are engaging, they are reaching the nations who have come to this city. August the 6th, we're going to be launching Westwood in Espanol. We as a church are going to be planting another church of reaching Hispanics, Spanish-speaking people with the gospel. We're going to have people here on our campus with different skin pigmentations, different spices to their foods, different languages, and yet they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a foretaste of what is to come in the new kingdom. And churches that seek to stay monolithic, churches that want to remain the same skin color within their church, they're missing out on being a part of the kingdom of God, and they're missing the foretaste of what's coming in the new kingdom. And so as we prepare for what is to come in Revelation 7, we as a church must intentionally be looking for ways that we can become more diverse, that we can reach more people with the gospel, that we can lock arms with someone who doesn't have the same skin color as us, but we love the same Savior. They're the same people whom Jesus has purchased with his precious blood. That is through the cross, Jesus gladly gave his life for the people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's through his death on the cross. He's made a way for anybody and everybody to get in on this. That anybody is welcome. You just got to realize that you're a sinner. And guess what? All of us qualify. Doesn't matter your skin color, you qualify. 
And yet the same Savior who came and gave His life for you has made a way that when you turn from your sin and you trust in Him by faith, you are received by God. Regardless of where you come from, regardless of how messed up your family is, regardless of how much money you got in your bank account, regardless of your past, you are invited into the kingdom. That the king has invited you to come in. What do you have to do? Nothing. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift that's offered to you. All you have to do is receive it. Say yes to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I believe my life is messed up apart from you. I deserve God's wrath for my sin and I'm guilty. But Jesus, I believe that you were you took my place on the cross. You took my guilt that I deserved and you took it on my behalf. I believe that you are the one who came to give his life for me. And those who trust in Jesus, God will never put to shame. God will never stiff arm you. God will never divorce you. God invites you into a permanent relationship with himself through his son, Jesus, who gave his life for you at the cross, bled and died on your behalf, was buried and raised on the third day. That this Savior who died for you is the one who defeated death. He is the one who scriptures promised would come. And as he comes back to life through his resurrection, you too will be raised to life. Which means if you are in Christ, death no longer has the last word over you. If you belong to Jesus, you are rescued forever. And this is what Christ came to accomplish, is to transform your heart and to put you into a new community, a new kind of people. A people whom you would never connect with or belong to apart from Him bringing you together with Himself. The first local church recorded in Scripture taking the, gospels to other, taking the gospel to other nations was a church at Antioch, a church that was already reaching the nations where they already were. There's a lesson in this. So at Westwood is we take the gospel to the nations, and we are, and we will. Simultaneously, we're reaching our neighbors right here with the gospel. Unreached people groups right here. People who desperately need the good news of Jesus and someone who will tell them what Christ came to accomplish. This is what we see happening here in Antioch. And may it be true of us today. What we see in the text is a propensity for studying the word of God, a diversity amongst the people of God, but thirdly, an intensity in the worship of God. Look at verse 2. As the church is worshiping the Lord and fasting. Press pause there, 1002. God's calling for mission came after they were already worshiping and fasting. Worship was what they already did. Missions came afterward. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. But before Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you backpedal one verse. It says the disciples gathered on that mountain and they worshipped him. 
The church exists for worship first. And from worship, we then take the gospel to the nations. John Piper says it like this, that missions exist because worship does not. And there are people around the world who cannot worship God because they do not know him. And so missions is the church, people who have heard the gospel and believe the gospel, and we take it so that they might come to worship him and to know him. The church at Antioch was seeking hard after the Lord. They're, they're praying, they're fasting, they're declaring, God, we want you more than food. God, we want you more than anything that this world provides. They were hungry for him. They worshiped him. They desired him. They wanted God. And those who want God the most get the most of God. He is the one we want. He is the one we treasure. He is the one who is worthy of worship. They were eager to pray and to offer up their lives as worship to the one who came and rescued them. And there was a passion in their worship. Question, when we gather together for worship, do you come with passion? Are you eager to worship? Or are you a spectator? There's a temptation for you to kind of sit back and say, I'm curious as to how good this music is going to be. Is this sermon really deep enough? Are the prayers genuinely heartfelt? How's the temperature in the room? What time are we getting out of here? You are going to be tempted to be a spectator. May I implore you, you're not a spectator, you're a worshiper. And when we gather, we come to worship. To make much of the one who came and gave his life for us. That we can sing with passion and clap and dance with gusto because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That when we gather, we're with people who are not checking our watches or thinking about what's coming next. He said, man, I'm here to meet with God. I desire him. I want to know him. And I want to hear from him because I know he is a God who speaks. So when we gather, we're with people who are expecting to meet with him. I want to invite you that when we come here to gather, come with a hunger and an expectation that you are going to meet with him, that you're here to serve him, not to be served, but to serve him and to glorify him for what he's done for you. For God is worthy of your best. He woke you up this morning. He gave you life and breath. He's given you salvation, forgiveness of all of your sins, adoption as a son, co-heirs with Christ. You have eternal life. He is worthy. He is high and exalted. He is the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the bright morning star. He's the sovereign over the cosmos. Oh, that you would give him praise today. He is faithful in all of his actions. He is truthful in all of his words. He is good in all of his ways. Oh, that he would worship him today. That you would glorify Jesus with all that you've got. That is who he is. And so when we gather, we sing with passion. We pray with passion. We are eager to meet with him because of who he is. There's no one like him. There is no other God. It's him and him 
alone. And so we, 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 we worship, we throw our hands up, not to be noticed by men, but to praise the one who's changed us. He's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And when we come to seek him and find him, he will reveal himself to us. He will meet with you. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what church? All your heart. And when we sit under the preaching of the word, we are humbling ourselves under the God who spoke the universe into existence and who still speaks today. We are a people who listen to God speak. That's what we see here in the text. As the people are worshiping, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said. God the Spirit speaks and the people are listening. Question, when you gather and God speaks, are you listening? Is there a sensitivity to the Spirit speaking into your life through His Word? Or are you distracted by temporary earthly things? But let's not miss the obvious right here in the text. God speaks through the corporate worship gathering of the church. You see, gathering faithfully with God's people matters. May I say to you, if you're gathering with the church once a month, twice every six weeks, here and there, you're missing it. That God wants to speak to you each and every time you gather with God's people. And it matters for your soul. And a concern that I have as your pastor is that there are many, because of the pandemic, they've gotten out of the habit of gathering with God's people. Now hear me on this. There's far more to being a follower of Jesus than going to church, but it's certainly not less. The spiritual discipline of gathering every week with God's people, it matters for your soul. And every time we gather, God is speaking speaking through His Word and all that you would be guided with God's people with an expectation to meet with Him and to hear from Him. Why? Because verse 2, the Holy Spirit still speaks. And He speaks through the Word of God. And so it matters that you're here in this room. It matters that you gather with God's people because your soul needs it. And you have no idea what God may be doing through the gathering of God's people. He very well may be preparing you for a new work. That's what's happening in Acts 13. We see the church gathering, they're praying, they're fasting, they're going hard after God, they're treasuring Him, and it's there that the Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. I am calling them to a new work. And it's through the gathering, the corporate gathering of God's people that the Lord may be calling you into a new work. Calling you to be set apart for something that you do not have plans. But it's a work that God has for you to do. And what is happening? It's the fourth mark of this church. And it's a unity around the mission of God. There's a unity around the mission of God. The Spirit sets Saul and Barnabas apart, and the church was of one accord. They lay their hands on Saul and Barnabas as a sign of their unity, of their commitment, of setting them apart. They pray over them, and they send them out. The church was worshiping as one. They're praying as one. They laid their hands as one, and they sent them off as one. 
And as the church gathers around their first missionaries, they send them out. A sign of blessing and unity of laying on of hands. But let's not also skip over the obvious here in the text. The Spirit selected those who were already in the game. They're not spectators. The Spirit does not call those who are watching from the bleachers. The Spirit calls those who are already in the work. They're already preaching the Word. They're already making disciples. The question is, are you involved in the game? Are you active in following Jesus? Are you serving within the church? Are you serving in the community? Are you saying, God, here's my life. Would you use me, my brief temporary life, until I am catapulted into eternity? God, while you have me here for such a time as this, would you use my brief temporary life to impact my world for Jesus? The Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas, those who are already doing the work. And the question is, are you doing the work? Are you already actively engaged in the mission of God? If not, today is the day in which you say, Lord, I'm ready to get involved. I want to give my life to the mission. I want to see as many people as possible come to faith in Jesus. So use my brief temporary life to impact my world for Jesus. In fact, that's the impact point I'm bringing to our church today. And it's this, go where God has sent you with the gospel. It's not if he has sent you. Jesus has gone on record. The Great Commission is for all believers. It's not for the paid professionals. It's not for the experts. It's for all of us. The question is not if you're called, but where. Where has God called you to go to advance the mission of the gospel? May I say to you, your neighborhood is your mission field. Your apartment complex is your mission field. Your ball field, your team, that is your mission field. The gardening club, that's your mission field. Your family, it's your mission field. Now, God may do Hear what he did in Acts 13. Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, for I am sending them to a new work. And God may do that in you. But the Lord may also leave you here in Antioch looking to impact your world for Jesus. And the mission remains. There's a lot of people in your life who do not know Jesus. And God has sent you in this time, at this place in history, to point people to Jesus. Oh, that you would leverage your gifts and your passions for the sake of the mission of the gospel, of going where God has sent you to tell people about Christ. And you have no idea how God will use your life to impact people for Jesus. Maybe something you can pray today is, God, would you use me this summer? I want to reach one person for Jesus. Would you just give me one? Maybe that one person is that coworker, it's your neighbor, it's your teammate, it's your boss. You're praying, God, would you let me reach them for Jesus? You pray for them, and then with boldness, you go and take the gospel to them. That is your mission field. You see, 
a dangerous church like Antioch and a dangerous church like Westwood wants to make much of Jesus. We want all peoples to come to know him in the same way that we have. And the gospel is too precious to keep to ourselves. So let's be a church that gets the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. Can we do that?